0: Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back,
1: relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson.
0: Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm speaking with Peter Young. Now Peter has an interesting story, but one that is becoming more and more prevalent, and that is getting sucked into a micro cult. Of course, we know you know some of the biggest cults of all times. We know Jim Jones in Jonestown. We know you know Charles Manson, we know the branch Davidians, we know the Moonies, all these different cults. We've had people on from large cults in the past. Uh, when it comes to um, the source family commune uh, or this the source family as uh as our our guests talked about you know these are are huge cults these are cults that have had documentaries about them. These are cults that have had hundreds of people at one point falling along with one cult leader. But what is becoming more and more prevalent uh, in the world and one that uh, is, is, has been being written about quite a bit, Mr. Young's going to talk about that a little bit, in this uh, conversation is the growth of microcults. And what a micro cult is, is a group of people that have, you know, maybe a, a family guru, they have a, a person that everyone looks up to, but instead of, you know, 2 300 people maybe it's just one family that listens to, to this person maybe it's a couple families and 12 15 20 people but it's a tight group a tight knit family basically that is following along with a cult leader no matter how big the cult is you know <laughs> there's there's these cult leaders that have take ownership of a small group of people And that's exactly what happens in the story this week. We're going to learn about a person named Uncle Robert. Sounds innocent enough. Sounds friendly enough. He is somebody who back 20, 30, 40 years ago kind of took hold of of this certain family. And we're going to get into that. Um, It's not really known whether there's uh, uh, other families involved, but we're going to focus on On one family, it's certainly a small cult. But Uncle Robert basically took control of of almost every aspect of their life. It started with two parents. The parents had children. The children started following um, Uncle Robert. And, uh, you know, the children grew up. They started having, you know, families of their own. And those families started following Uncle Robert as well. So, you know, at the largest, we're, we're talking 12, 13 adults and and some some kids, along with it, um, now, what happens when parts of the family decide not to follow Uncle Robert? What happens when they they start questioning things well that 's when we see how powerful this micro cult is because the family starts disowning their own children when they decide not to follow Uncle Robert. This is just a a, a crazy, crazy story. This story comes from Peter Young, who married into this family. You know, he married uh, his ex-wife now, named Paige, that uh, you know grew up following this Uncle Robert. And he didn't know exactly what he was getting himself into. He heard that this family has a, a guru. He seemed friendly, a little bit crazy, but uh, friendly enough, so he kind of went full steam ahead. And, and through the next 20 years, he, he learned just how much of a hold... Uncle Robert had on the family, just how powerful he was. And at the end, we learned that uh, his power over over Paige and his family was was stronger than Peter's marriage. And they get divorced, and uh, you know, parts of of their own children stick with the 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 cult, and and parts uh, leave uh, with with Peter. But this is a crazy, crazy story. Uh, I don't normally use the word crazy, but this story is is just extremely impactful. It seems so bizarre to, to most people to, to think that this one person, you know, this one person was able to to create such a hold, such a a power over people. You know, it's, I don't want to say easier, but it, it, we see a little bit of, of groupthink when it comes to these huge cults. Um, with, you know, two, three hundred people and you, you're you moving away to, you know, the the commune and you kind of have to go along to get along there because now you've, you've given up everything and you're there. You know, this time Uncle Robert lives in California. This family lives in Idaho and somehow he's still holding a power over them. We're going to talk about some crazy circumstances where and we're going to go into deeper, deeper stories with this. But at one point. Uh, Peter was was asked to give up his spare wedding ring to Uncle Robert because uh he needed a wedding ring uh There's a time when their one of their children needed dental work and they had to call Uncle Robert to make sure that was okay before they let the dentist do the work just some some interesting things it, it kind of it hits the breaking point when uh when Paige decides that she wants to uh have an heir a parent to uncle Robert and uh Father, a child for him. It, it, this is just a, a, a crazy, crazy story. Again, I'm using that word "crazy" that I, I don't like, but it's just it's a it's a powerful story about being able to wake up and see that hey, this is not right. This is this went so far off of of what uh, what we thought was happening. And uh, unfortunately, you know, Peter woke up 20 years later. And realize things, you know. I, I think that throughout the entire, you know, entire marriage and the entire time with with Uncle Robert, he had had kind of figured out, hey, this is not right. But it took that long and, and some some really interesting things um, to uh, to hit, finally hit that breaking point. Uh, this this conversation, I think you're going to enjoy it. It's it's a it's just a, a it's just it's it's wild. That's all I'm going to say. Just to to learn about. This, you know, small micro cult that just completely shaped this family and is continuing to shape them and, and frankly, continuing to, uh, to break them apart. So I, uh, I, I want you to, to, to take to heart what Peter's saying. He has a book where he goes into more depth about, uh, about this. It's called, uh, stop the tall man, save the tiger, which sounds interesting, but we're going to talk about what that means exactly. Cause it does have some meaning there. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think you're going to really, really enjoy this one. If you like to hear anything about um, cults or just human nature, this is a this is a powerful one. So here is Peter Young. I'm here today with Peter Young. Mr. Young, how are you? I'm great, Jackson. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. If you would just introduce yourself first.
1: Sure. Peter Young, I'm an author. I've written two books, uh, a novel called uh, The Blue Team about uh, faith and basketball. And then I recently released a memoir Call stop the tall man, save the tiger, and uh, used to be a sports broadcaster for a long time, but uh, now sell real estate and live out in uh, just outside of Bozeman, Montana.
0: I love it, and and you know we're obviously going to talk a lot about your your memoir. Right in the beginning of the book, I, I I think it was interesting. Definitely after having read a good chunk of it, it's where you said that this story. A lot of people told you, hey, you should just take kind of elements of this and. And write a fiction story and you like, I can't do that because if someone read it as fiction, no one would believe it, but it actually all happened and it's going to, it's just a fascinating story. We're going to get into that, but I want to, uh, want to start out with what you mentioned as far as your, your previous career, because that's pretty cool to people. I think that could have been a podcast too, just talking about, um, being a sports broadcaster, talk a little bit about, uh, that early career when, when you were doing those things.
1: Sure. Well, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of my life. So I grew up in New Jersey, played basketball, and I was going to be the next Larry Bird. So I went to college at George Washington University, played for the Colonials, and now they've changed their name, but uh, played Division I, and I was not the next Larry Bird. It was not very good. So then I got into coaching when I graduated, and I was going to be the next John Wooden. And I coached for two years, one year at college at CU, University of Colorado, one at high school. And I was quite immature at the time, so I was not a very good coach. And then I got into broadcasting, was going to be the next Bob Costas of outdoor sports. I joke I was the Bob Costas of sports nobody watched. <laughs> so I was with OLN, the Outdoor Life Network, and then did some other networks as well, ESPN and um, A&E, TNN, Fox, Fox Northwest. And then one day, the president of OLN decided he didn't like the sound of my voice. So I had to get a new job. And that's what happened. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I like that you that you shot for the stars. It wasn't just be a good coach or be a good basketball player. You basically pick the the best ones of your time and be like, that's that's who I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be that.
1: Well, and that's part of the message of my book, The Blue Teams, which the, the message is, you know, be yourself, number one, right? Um, you know, the world doesn't need a next Larry Bird because he's already taken, right? So be your be yourself. But also, uh, my identity is in something greater than myself. So for me, it's Jesus Christ, I'm a Christian. And so basketball or coaching or broadcasting is something I do. It's not who I am. So the idea is that you don't put your identity in that thing because you're not going to have a great night every night when you play basketball, right? But you are still something else, right? You don't put so much pressure on the thing that you do. And that's the message on my first book.
0: No, I, I love that. And I noticed too that you said you grew up in in New Jersey, which is very different from Colorado and certainly different from Idaho and, and Montana, where you live now. Were you just always drawn to that outdoor world? Why did you leave the West Coast and have, have really never looked back?
1: Uh, great question. No one's asked me that. So I, I think uh, I said West gym Coast. Rat. I meant East Coast. Yeah. So I was a gym rat, you know, just lived in the gym, never tan, right? Kiki Vandeway had that great saying, the guy that played the Nuggets, UCLA. And then I went to school in D.C. And I redshirted one year. So I had a fifth year coming up. So my buddy and I, when we graduated, we flew up to San Francisco and we rented a car and drove around the Northwest, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Colorado. And I fell in love on that trip. So then I played my fifth year for coach Mike Jarvis. We were finally good. Jarvis then went on to St. John's, great coach. And I've been out West ever since. That was 1991. Hmm. Well, I want to kind of get into
0: this second book and kind of started at the beginning. And I think that the beginning was you meeting your future wife at that time um, talk about a little bit of, about the the early years, because I think the early years were were relatively grand. So talk a little bit about that. I think this was before we we meet a character that we're going to meet here in a little bit named Uncle Robert. But talk a little bit about those early years.
1: Sure. I was living in Pocatello, Idaho. So this is mid-90s. And I was doing the 6 and 10 sports for the ABC affiliate. Uh, flat broke, but loved it. Loved my job. And I had seen Paige. That was uh, my my former wife. Seen her around town, stunningly beautiful, you know, six foot one, long, blonde hair, athletic, didn't know her. Met her. I was at the gym working out with a guy named Gary. And I described her to him. He says, oh, I know who that is. That's Paige Claussen. But be careful because she has this really weird family guru. So, you know, before I'd ever even met her, I heard about the guru, which turned out to be this mysterious Uncle Robert. So then I met Paige at a singles Bible study, which is, of course, why you go to those things, right? <laughs> and then... uh Oh, we started dating right away. But then about two weeks in, I was 90% sure Jackson I wanted to marry her. But I needed to meet her dad and his uncle Robert because she talked about him all the time. So I met her dad around Thanksgiving. You know, we've been dating about a month. And, you know, odd. There were certainly some odd moments. One of them was I went to go use the bathroom down the hall, stood up to pee because I'm a guy. Finished, flushed, washed my hands, opened the door. And there he is standing there and he was listening. And he says in our house, the men sit to pee because it keeps the toilet cleaner. And Uncle Robert taught us that. And I probably heard that phrase a hundred times over the next 20 years. So then I finally met this Uncle Robert a few months later and odd, yes, kind of bizarre, but I at the time kind of thought he was harmless and uh, which was not the case, but I was in love. I was blinded by love. And so then, you know, Paige and I got married a few months later. First child came along 10 months later And for the first few years of our marriage, I thought I was the best husband ever. She was the best wife ever. You know, we were setting the bar for all time. And uh, of course, it wasn't the case because lurking behind the scenes in a role that was far greater than I knew was Uncle Robert.
0: Yeah. And I want you, this is the hardest question because there's just so much to the situation. But I want you to tell us, I guess, who Uncle Robert was. We're going to talk about exactly some of the teachings and some of the interesting stuff that he said. Uh, but but as a whole, who was Uncle Robert?
1: Sure. Uncle Robert's name is Robert Booty. He came from Syria. So, you know, he's not a blood uncle. You know, I'm six foot five, typical North European looks, you know, Page's family, again, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes. So he met Page's parents at a tiny seminary in Fresno, California, before Page was even born. And he kind of glommed on like a parasite to Jack and Kathy, who are Page's parents. And they had this very, you know, lopsided relationship where he was just kind of this dominant I guess probably at the time, cult wannabe. So Paige grew up where he was always this authority figure on everything. And he really, you know, again, dominated the thoughts and actions of Paige's parents and their family. Even though he lived in California, they lived in, you know, at the time they were in BC, uh, Canada, British Columbia, then down in Idaho. But he was always, you know, <laughs> the family guru is really probably the best way to put it. He was always around lurking. If he was not, they're in person, always just a phone call away.
0: And I want you to kind of talk about some of some of his teachings, the highlights of it, in kind of the email that you sent me. And I'll tell you, I mean, I try to be as as unbiased as possible. I've talked to people from all different faiths, and even people that are still actively in, you know, what people would consider cults. But I was eating lunch when you sent this to me, and one particular part about the casinos. That almost made me spit out my lunch. So I'm, I'm just. I want you to talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit about some of the, some of the, the teachings that he had. Let's start with some of the, I guess bizarre ones, and we can get to some of the less bizarre.
1: Sure. Well, I would probably say the most bizarre one is that you know, for for Uncle Robert, his his main theological point was that. All of recorded history is a struggle between Christians and Jews. It goes back to, if you know your Bible, Jacob and Esau. Esau becomes Eden, which becomes modern Jewry. Jacob becomes the 12 tribes, which is modern Christianity. So literally every war, recession, depression, plane crash, you name it, is a Jewish conspiracy to try and dominate the world. Wow. Okay. So, you know, he kind of threw that out there a few years after we got married. And I, and I was the one that kept asking too many questions about it. And he got tired of my questions. But, you know, Paige and her parents bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. They believed everything he said. So in addition to that, there was American Sovereign National Credit where he expected you know everybody, you and me and anybody else could write a check on basically on the bank of themselves and borrow as much money as they wanted to, which of course is idiotic, would lead to hyperinflation overnight. And then the casinos. So Jack and Kathy would go visit Uncle Robert during the summers. They had teaching jobs during the summer. They'd go down there for about a month, kind of like you know sit at the foot of Buddha, right? And they would have this halo effect. Whatever Uncle Robert had been drumming into their heads, they couldn't stop talking about. So when they came back this one summer, this is maybe we'd been married seven, eight years, Jack tells me that you know casinos are the true churches in America. And the churches that you go to on a Sunday you know, are just a waste of time. But the churches, uh, the casinos are the true churches because anybody can go into a casino, regardless of your bank account, your success, race, creed, gender, whatever, and be blessed by the Lord. Which I would say okay, but you know I don't see anybody worshiping the Lord in a casino. I see them worshiping, you know, maybe their drinks, their cigarette, and money. That's it. And then, oh by the way, he also called them the casinos his office because see, Uncle Robert never had a real job, not that I saw. And I, you know, been around, I was around the guy for almost twenty-five years. His wife had a job at a hospital, so she made the money, and he had no money. You know, we would tithe to him, and he would always say, "Oh, this check came at the best time." And when he would travel around the country to, you know, spread the quote unquote true gospel, he would stop by casinos, his office, and gamble to get enough money to, you know, fill up the gas tank for the next hundred miles.
0: Well, two questions I have about that one serious and one not so serious. The not so serious one is if he felt that way about casinos, I'm just wondering, like, what was his thoughts on Vegas? Is that just like the, his religion's Mecca or what, where, where are we at with Vegas? I feel like that's like the Holy Land.
1: Well, so you know, the casinos all over the place, and he would usually try and hit the ones that were on the reservations. And so there's one in Southern California. I can't. Remember, it's on the way out to Palm Desert, and yeah, you know, he would go there all the time. And and you know, for me, it's like listen, you know, Jackson, you, know, you want to go to the, the casino on a Friday night with your buddies and and play blackjack or whatever it is, play the slots and blow fifty bucks, have at it, have fun. But to think that you're going to beat uh, the casino, that you know you are going to be able to win. Well, listen, everybody walked into the casino that night thought the same thing. And oh, by the way, the casinos are big buildings and they give you free drinks for a reason. The house always wins.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I yeah, I'm I'm with you there. Um, the more serious question in, in all that is, you know, obviously you talked about religious war when it comes to Christianity and Judaism. What what did that do to to him and to the people that you know that that followed him? is it something that they kind of just listened and agreed or did they live their life kind of as, you know, anti-Semitic? Cause that, I mean, that's a whole different thing. I, I don't know whether, how, how much they took to heart with it, because that's, that's scary. If they, if they took it really as to, to heart and actually lived that way towards, you know, people of the Jewish faith.
1: Yeah. You know, good question. Again, I, I never saw them act out anything at all. I certainly never did either. You know, I, when I got married my buddy from high school and college is Jewish you know, the last time Schneider. I was in his wedding. He was in my wedding. You know, and so when Uncle Robert shared this at, at first, when he shared it, I, I was stunned. I was, quite frankly, scared. I thought, oh my gosh, this is really dark. And I thought we should have nothing to do with him. Of course, you know, Paige was not going to go along with that. And I never followed up. I really should have pressed the issue. This would have been three years after we got married. But it was not something that was overt uh, in our lives, not even in his life, really. Um, but what it really did was kind of set the tone for the paranoia and secrecy. So cults control their members via numerous tools, but mostly paranoia and secrecy. So the paranoia is, well, certain Jews who are trying to control the world know that Uncle Robert's a threat. They know that Uncle Robert's on to them, right? Like Uncle Robert supposedly had a meeting with Alan Greenspan, the former chairman of the Fed. And so all these Jews know this. And of course, all the Jews are thus listening in on our cell phones, and they're probably going through Uncle Robert's trash. And oh, by the way, so we have to be careful. We have to watch what we say on our cell phones. We have to shred our trash just like he does. And when he goes on trips we can't ever say to him, you know, hey, how is D.C. or New Mexico or wherever he is? Because, of course, the Jews were listening. So since he is so wise and he knows the real truth, his life is in danger. Therefore, our lives are in danger. Therefore, we circle the wagons. We keep it secret and we don't share with anybody. And now he has his control.
0: Yeah. And I want to I want to ask you, too, um, because it, it, an important part of the book was talking about how you know every every teaching of somebody who is a cult leader is not, you know, is not crazy. It's it's not that the you know the Jewish people are out to get you, and that casinos are you know the the true churches. Those are some pretty. Crazy sounding things, but there's a lot of things too that cult leaders say that makes sense because you've got to, you know, put some some sugar in there be, with with some of the poison that you're giving, or you're not going to gain those followers initially. I think that's important because you know, you look at cult leaders out there and people are like, oh, this isn't. I've I've heard this from people that I've interviewed that have been in cults that you start out like, oh, I don't think this is a cult because. What they're saying actually makes sense. This isn't a bad thing, but then it slowly starts turning into something totally, totally different. So speak on that a little bit. Um, what, what, what did he talk about that was, you know, that did make some, some sense. Um, and then also just the, the larger picture of how, you know, these things slowly start happening and that, you know, the the, the things that make sense slowly start being convoluted into things that, uh, that are dangerous, frankly.
1: Sure. Well, at first, a lot of what he said made sense. What I say is you never know you are in a cult. You only know you were in a cult because cults can come in all shapes and sizes. They look very different. And certainly when people think of cults, they can think of really evil things like Jim Jones and David Koresh where people are dying. But at its foundation, cults are all about undue mind control. So there was no abuse in the little cult of Uncle Robert, which we didn't have a name for it. There was no violence. There was no abuse. There was no shouting or screaming or or sex or anything like this. None of that. It was all about the undue mind control. And so I feel like I'm not the dumbest guy in the room. So I'm not just going to fall for a cult, right? Like nobody joins a cult. They only realize after the fact. They join what they think is legitimate. So the analogy I gave or the metaphor is, you know, if you mishit a golf ball, Jackson, by an eighth of an inch, quarter of an inch. 100 yards down the fairway, it's way off to the left or way off to the right, nowhere near the pit. Well, Uncle Robert would tee up the correct golf ball, so to speak, he would read from the Bible. But then he had a unique and perverse ability. Take each and every verse and give it his odd twist so that five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, we were way away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it was so slow, like you said, I was the proverbial frog in the boiling water. And it took a long, long time uh, to finally get to the point where I realized you know, how awful this was. Now, early on, I had a lot of doubts the first five years or so. Again, with, you know, with the idea about you know, the Jews trying to take over the world. At first, I thought this guy was crazy. But then little by little, oh, this makes sense, that makes sense, till I was fully brainwashed for probably about two to three years and really did not see it fully with eyes and ears open till about a year after Paige had left me and I was effectively kicked out of the cult.
0: So when you so this book, I mean, you you talk a lot about just all the situations. Are you looking kind of backwards, or during the time were you realizing that it was all pretty pretty interesting? Because the book is written like every situation that you weren't really all that brainwashed. But so talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So in my memoir, "Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger," what I tried to do was bring the reader along so you could kind of see some of my thinking and thought process in the moment. Obviously, I wrote it after the fact, after Paige had left me. I basically wrote it during COVID, right? Like I wrote like four to five hours a day and just couldn't stop. It was very cathartic and therapeutic to get it out of me. But I wanted the reader to see how subtle the process is. You know, people will say, well, I would never let that happen to me. I would never join a company. Fine, believe that. But I'm just telling you, it could happen to anybody. And again, I never planned on it. So the memoir really the goal is to take you along this journey to see how it really could happen. It is kind of stunning, like, oh my gosh, he's not going to fall for it. And he finally does, the he being being me. And so there are certainly a couple of lessons along the way that I try to share in the book that provide people, you know, kind of an insight into a cult and also, you know, red flags. How do you notice it? And let's say, try and rescue a friend or family member. The biggest one being Jackson, you know, if, if you've got a friend, Family member, someone you is in your bowling league, or you go gambling on Friday night with them. And all of a sudden, that person cuts off all of their long term relationships. You don't ever hear from a phone call or email. They don't show up to Bible study or whatever it is. That's a huge red flag. Doesn't mean they've joined a the cult, but that is one of the signs. And that's a big red flag.
0: Another thing, and what you said earlier, Again, I've only been able to get through half of the book. So maybe you you finish this story later on. but you mentioned a second ago that this cult there was not uh, you know, there wasn't any kind of harm, there wasn't any kind of abuse. I think that's kind of broke apart the family because wasn't there a accusation of of sexual abuse at some point?
1: Well, let me be clear, there was certainly a ton of abuse, but it would have been mental, emotional, and spiritual abuse. There was no physical abuse that I ever saw. Uh, and I was completely faithful my entire marriage. I even wanted to have a divorce. I loved my wife. Clearly, the last few years of the marriage were tough, but I still loved her. Never wanted a divorce. OK, so one of the sisters, well, one of the siblings of Paige uh, and her family was all split up because of Uncle Robert. So you're, you're correct in that. You know, that family imploded and it's still broken apart, as is mine. She did accuse Uncle Robert of things that, you know, at the time it was explained to me. This is going back to 2000. It sounded almost like you know he had you know sexually assaulted or raped her or something, which it was not. I found out years later what the actual accusations were when I reached out to this uh, former sister-in-law, uh, Rebecca. And it was you know creepy, disgusting. You know, if you did it to your child, we didn't want to punch him in the nose. Yes, illegal, no. But really, really creepy. Was he grooming her for, let's say, a larger role later in life? Maybe it's possible. Uh, you know, right around the time when I, you know, my my wife left me, I read a a massive tome on Rasputin, the you know former spiritual guru to the last czar and czarina. It was fascinating the the parallels with him and Uncle Robert. You know, because uh, you know, kind of this odd figure comes out of nowhere, you know, broke and has you know certainly an obsession with sex and uh, has this you know very you know cult like following people that love him or hate him, which is exactly the way. People react to uncle Robert. Most people just either dismiss him or they're totally devoted to him.
0: Yeah. And I want you now, because in the book, you talk about quite a few just bizarre stories. I want you to kind of tell the listener a little bit about some of those things and just the grasp that he had on, on this particular family. The two that you mentioned in the email, I think would be two that would really kind of show people what was happening. And that is about your, your wedding ring. And then ultimately about, uh, I guess the topic of of surrogacy.
1: Sure. So, you know, again, I, I I absolutely adored and loved my wife. And um I realized, you know, seven, eight years in, maybe nine, that she probably didn't really uh adore me or love me or or honor me like she surely did Uncle Robert. And uh I, you know, it was pointed out in very graphic terms in, in those two examples. So I lost my wedding band two, three years into our marriage, couldn't find it, bought a new one. Many years later, I found the original wedding band in an old grungy jacket. I was working in the garden, found it, and I immediately showed it to Paige. And it brought on an instant wave of nostalgia, you know, from the early days when we lived in Idaho, we were first married, and our marriage was so wonderful. At least it wasn't my eyes. And uh, so it was very representative and symbolic of what I hoped our marriage would one day turn back to. Well, at about that same time, Uncle Robert had told Paige that he lost his wedding band. So she asked me, said, you know, you can't wear two of them because I'd already bought a replacement. And so I sent him my original wedding band and he wore it. And it was unseemly. It was awful. But I went along to get along and I did a lot of that. I went along to get along. But on one topic, I did not go along just to get along with Paige. And that was a few years later, we had a little tradition uh, in our marriage where Friday night was date night and Saturday night was family night. So on a Friday night date night, we had five kids at the time and we had talked about having a six that we were hoping it would be a son. We would call him Matthew. So she got all dressed up, hair, makeup, the work. She looked great. We go to a coffee shop and she tells me all about her burning desire to have another child, a son. And then she says, the son is for Uncle Robert. So Uncle Robert had two sons. And they married, they're now adults in their forties and uh, they had daughters, they had no sons. So there was no one to carry on Uncle Robert's precious bloodline. So she wanted to have a male grandson with one of Uncle Robert's sons so that she could provide you know, this gift offering of a child so that Uncle Robert's bloodline could continue. And I was outraged. I mean, first of all, stunned and hurt that my wife of nearly 17, 18 years at this time would do this, would wanna do this. And then what made it even worse was because she could tell I did not want it. I was completely against it. I chose my words carefully. I didn't explode because I knew that would just get me in more trouble. Uh, but, I, you know, thinking about her pregnant with Uncle Robert's grandson would make me, you know, physically ill. Then she said, you know, that she had taken a vow before the Lord that she would never have another child with me unless she could at least offer that gift to Uncle Robert and his son. And um It was appalling but it clearly showed looking back how devoted she was to him I was still in denial you know I still thought well you know we could work it out and she'll eventually fall madly in love with me again but she never did
0: yeah and I want I want to also kind of if those don't drive the point home which they I think they certainly do just how much of a grasp that he had or, and still probably does on on these these this family I guess another story that I think kind of shows that is because he was the expert on, on everything. That's, that's what she said. Even things that would make absolutely no sense that he would have, you know, expertise on talk about a little bit about that devotion and how it played a part in, in, I guess, daily life. One part that was interesting to me was that you guys needed to consult him when, uh, when your son was getting his his teeth worked on, which is pretty, pretty crazy. So talk a little bit about, uh, just that devotion and his expertise, and then that particular story,
1: sure. So my two oldest boys were like seven and five at the time, and they're wrestling on the bed. You know, and if you're a parent listening to this, you know those moments. they're wonderful. You cherish them, and I'm sitting there on the bed with him watching it. And then in an instant, it turns into a nightmare. One of the kids, you know front teeth hit the other kids back of their head. They're both crying. So the older boy, you know, his two front teeth are wiggly, and they're amazing, they didn't fall out. So we go to the dentist the next morning. And the dentist kind of said to do one thing and then later on says to do something else. So we're sitting there in his office and Paige refused to let the dentist do the procedure he wanted to, which was just install a little bar to keep the teeth in place so they could reset. But we were not going to proceed until she could get Uncle Robert on the phone and talk to him and ask his opinion. And by the way, he was never a doctor, never a dentist, didn't have a medical license of any kind that I know of but because she respected his opinion more than anybody else. You know, we made this dentist who'd been in this town for like decades wait until we converse with Uncle Robert. And then of course he was like, oh yeah, that's fine. You know, do what the dentist says. But Paige had to run it by Uncle Robert. Now that's one example. There are hundreds. Another one which you might find fascinating was Uncle Robert knew next to nothing about sports. He wouldn't know a basketball from a football. And the fact that I did drove him nuts because I love using sports as a metaphor for life. I love using sports stories to help explain life. You know, the discipline we learn, uh, obeying authority and hard work and setting goals, all the things that you could learn by being a player or, or a coach, right? And he didn't know anything about it. So it drove him nuts. And so then when I wrote my first book, The Blue Team, which is about faith in basketball, he was very critical and uh, when I did the first draft, I was about to publish it. You know, he and my father-in-law at the time thought, oh, you know, it's, it's a travesty, makes a mockery of Christianity, and if you publish it, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. So I went back to the drawing board and actually changed it a little bit, which the irony is I think I made the story better, and then did publish the book. But when it came to things like that, you know, he was either fully dismissive of it and thus our involvement in it, or he was going to dictate how, what, where, when, and why. So, I mean, I think
0: there's two kind of unfathomable things when when we're listening to this story. Uh, the first one is just, you said that he met this family in seminary and that they kind of just gravitated towards him. Why do you think all this is? Do you think that the the father-in-law, which I believe was Jack, uh, was just super impressionable and needed someone to, to listen to? Or, how, how did, why do you think he had such a grip on people, these people? Because it doesn't really make any sense. He's not anything like them. He's, it's not like he's wealthy and everyone's aspiring to be like him when it comes to that. I, ju- it just doesn't make sense of why they care so much about this fella.
1: Well, that's a hard question for me to answer because, you know, for people listening, you might be thinking, well, again, well, Peter, why did you fall for this? Well, I, you know, if I was not married to Paige, you know, I would have sat down with a cup of coffee with, you know, Uncle Robert, Robert Booty. And within 20 minutes, I would have thought, eh, you know, he's kind of interesting, but he's a crackpot. And I would never have followed him. Certainly, I would never have followed him once I got into all this theology. I would have ran away as fast as I could. So then why did Jack? Well, you know, I I knew Jack for, you know, over 20 years. He was my father-in-law, at times a very kind man, but a, a very, clearly a very misled and brainwashed uh, person that relied on Uncle Robert for everything. One thing that is common, I believe, in cult members is that the cult leader will make you doubt everything. And so by the end of these 20 years, you know, I doubted every single thought and word. Like it was hard to do anything. Like if I bonked my front teeth and went to the dentist, you know, 20 years in, I might have waited to call Uncle Robert. It was that bad. I doubted every single thing, which when I look back is crazy to me, but it shows the depth of the brainwashing that he was the expert on everything. And it's fine to have someone that you look up to and he's an expert, but the flip side of that coin, the dark side of that coin is that now you doubt every single thing that you've ever done, ever thought, ever done. It has to get run by him. And that really is the best description of Jack is that he doubts everything, even the fact that you know he was a father of five children, but now feeling like he was a fraud, he was never a Christian until much later in life when Uncle Robert, quote unquote, saved him. He's now very dismissive of the fact that he was a father to those five children and raised five children. So I don't know if I have the answer, Jackson, to whether or not, you know, when you go back 50 some odd years uh and and Jack met Robert, what was it? Again, I can tell you for some people, he is very charismatic. He's also very narcissistic. Some people would see right through it, others, they're just a bit more susceptible. And I, and I, it's hard for me to. Really pinpoint why?
0: I, I think that a lot of times, looking back, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's really hard to to truly understand these things. Your marriage eventually dissolved, uh, but it was your wife who who decided that it was wasn't something that she wanted to be in anymore. Before I get to that part, I, I guess I had had thought that, and again, I haven't finished the book, but I had thought that you know you had kind of been doubting the entire time, and that she finally just said. Been like, well, if you can't, you know, if you can't, if you can't join the the ship, then then jump off. Uh, but it sounds like you were doing quite a bit and sticking with it. So what what happened there?
1: Oh well, so how do I unwind this? You know, without taking too much time. But you know, if you go back to, and we can talk about the title of the book. But you know, Uncle Robert had convinced Paige she wasn't a Christian, and, and she believed him. So thus, he acted as the gatekeeper to God. You know, you have to go through Uncle Robert to be saved, which, of course, is utter nonsense. But Paige believed it. And that was right before we got married. And then her father a few years later. And then her mother a few years later. And then about 12 years later, it was my turn. And uh, I was just worn down and beaten down by this Uncle Robert and my wife. and And they just kept... You know, telling me these things, and maybe I'm missing something. So I finally caved, allowed him to quote-unquote save me, which I now know is utterly fraudulent and wicked, and I never should have believed this little man, but I did. So as I saw the writing on the wall, so to speak, I was also at that point now almost fully brainwashed. And the writing on the wall was, you know, my wife still doesn't love me. She still doesn't trust me. She still doesn't really respect me. And and I was desperate for that. I was desperate to have a great marriage. I still love this woman, despite how awful it had gotten at that point in the last year or two of our marriage. And um, so, you know, at that point, I kind of stopped asking the tough questions and instead was trying to, really trying hard to embrace this little cult leader. Again, I wouldn't have thought that in my mind, but I was really trying hard to, in my mind, say, okay, all these years I've been resisting this guy. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'll really try hard to grasp what he is offering And then when I do, when I see it, well, you know, Paige and I will now have this wonderful marriage like I've always wanted. So that's why, you know, I kind of hung in there. And Paige, you know, just thought I was a fraud and just was faking it and never truly was a believer. And then about a month after she left, it got really, really bad. Unfortunately, it took a huge turn for the worse.
0: In the book, you say it too about how you just kind of got along to get along and that was kind of a, a theme that you you were just desperately trying to figure out exactly what was needed of you and also how to I guess regain this respect and and potentially love of, of your wife the thing that I guess that it's a little bit you know we talked about it before we we started but also it's a little bit I guess awkward to say but I it just seems to me and the thing that I wonder about is because you were just trying so hard to, to, to figure out exactly what was needed of you. If if she would have, you know, accepted that, hey, okay, um, you you're now saved by Uncle Robert. You're going along with everything. Would you have continued to go along to get along? Would you have still been married? Do you think you ever would have actually kind of realized what was happening to you? Um, I just wonder whether we're talking because it blew up or because you actually would have ever figured it out?
1: Well, another great question. And that's the one I really don't have the answer to, but it's fascinating to think about, right? So after Paige left me, you know, I was desperate to get her back and I would have, you know, done practically anything at that point for the first few months. And, you know, our divorce really wasn't final until, oh my gosh, our divorce was, it was, I think three and a half years after she left me before it was finally finalized. So, and I kind of dragged it out because I didn't want it. Um, so what I still be in it, you know, here in 2023, I don't know, you know, God forbid I would still be right. But then what would the catalyst have been to get me out of it? I do think Jackson, that as long as uncle Robert was a presence in Paige's life, our marriage was doomed, whether it was a year in or 50 years in, it was going to happen as long as he was alive, as long as he had that position in her life, our marriage was doomed. What would it have looked like if she didn't leave me in 2017? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Kind of scary, too, really, to think about it. Because, yes, my family imploded. My marriage got broken up. It was devastating. And what I went through was horrendous. And I would never wish it on anybody else. But I am a much stronger man because of it. And my children have been rescued from a tiny, destructive religious cult.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I just, I, I guess I just wonder you know so much did happen that you did continue to try to 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 figure it out i just wonder i don't know i'm 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 i I'm am guess i'm a, a little lost for words of how you and i think a lot of people listening would be kind of just at a loss to figure out exactly why at the end it wasn't like finally this is over with and i don't have to deal with this craziness anymore that you were for several months being like, I want to, I want to work this out. I want to get this back. I mean, what was, what was going through your head? Obviously I understand that, you know, you were, you were married for 20 plus years, but you really weren't being, uh, you weren't really being treated all that well. So I, was it almost just like, uh, I don't know, survivor's guilt, or I don't really understand it.
1: Well, let me see if I can try and, you know, put to words what, what you were uh, suggesting or getting at. And that is that, you know, Paige is, different person now than she was when I married her. And so there was always this ability for her to turn into this person because of Uncle Robert always in her ear, feeding her his thoughts. But the woman that I married in 1997 is, is not the same person that she is now, nor has she been the same person for the last, you know, probably 10 years or so. So there was a huge change that I saw. And I firmly believe that, you know, without Uncle Robert in her life, she could be that person again. So the real issue I have is not so much Page as hard as that is when you read my book, to grasp, but it's really Uncle Robert because, and again, for people that have been on, you know, in the firing line of, you know, Paige and her words, I mean, she could be brutal uh, with her letters and emails and in, in person, you know, the, the vitriol that she spews at people. And I was you know, the direct, you know, object. I was the target for a long time. But she is a victim, just like I was, just like my children were. Because she has been under the undue mind control of Uncle Robert her entire life. If you have trouble with the word cult, there's a guy named Stephen Hassan or Hassan. You know, he wrote a great book, uh, Combating Cult Mind Control. He says, listen, if, if cult you know, could only conjure up images of Jim Jones and drinking the Kool-Aid, fine. Think of it as undue mind control. Mm-hmm. Well, Uncle Robert has had that page her entire life. I saw a glimpse of the page without that. And, uh, I guess I always wanted that. I never wanted to get divorced. I always dreamed of having a wonderful, happy marriage and family. I felt like we had it for a time and it was devastating to see it torn away from me.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's really important. What you said, it reminds me of a very different situation, but the same type of thing where about a year, year, year and a half ago, I interviewed somebody who had experienced sexual abuse in the church. there youth pastor had molested them as a, as a child. And the thing that we talked about and that a lot of people have talked to her about was how now she's friends with that pastor's ex-wife who knew about it the entire time. So everyone's always like, how in the world could you be friends with that person? How with they knew about this and they allowed it to happen. And what she mentioned was she was just as much a victim as of him as I was. I, he was, she was under the same spell as I was. It was the, ex- so it's almost at that point, victim shaming to think about her in a bad way. And I feel like it's easy to fall in that trap because that's kind of what I, I I'm doing here with, with Paige, but she's a victim too. She just hasn't realized it yet.
1: Yeah. And you know, she is responsible as we all are for her words and her actions and her sure. deeds and everything that she, she has done. You know, she broke up a marriage. Again, I was completely faithful, our entire marriage, as, as I, I would imagine she was as well. But um, you know what, I mean, I can't imagine if she were to finally have her eyes and ears opened by the Lord and to really see what she's done with her life and what booty has done to her. Can't imagine what it would be like for her. I mean, it'd be unbelievably difficult because again, I was brainwashed. I don't know. Let's say three years, roughly make it four. There's probably only three. It took me a year to get over it. I can't imagine how hard it would be for her, but you know, I used to pray for her every day. I, I don't do it every day now. I'll admit, but I used to pray for her every day for years that she would have a road to Damascus type moment. So the road to Damascus where Saul becomes Paul, you know, he's persecuting the Christians and then he writes half the new Testament roughly. And, um, but you know, the Lord doesn't need me to write a book to to help him. He, He can figure it out. And if he wants to give Paige that moment, he will.
0: Yeah. And I, I just in, in the people that I've, I've interviewed when it comes to cults before from, from what my, from what I gather, definitely given that she was, has been in it for so long, even if she were to see the light so to speak it, it's it's at this point it's a lifelong process you know i've interviewed people who left a cult in 1978 mm. and 1978 and they still to this day say they're still not they're still not completely over it there's still people living the way that that particular cult leader had them live which he he passed away back then that's what broke up the cult but I don't think I don't think that I I don't want to say unsalvageable but I don't think that there's really a way at this point to completely be you know normal if, if that's the word I don't really like that word but I think that the as you saw just in your 3 or 4 years of being mind controlled with it and how long it took you I think that it would just times that by what 30 40 years it would be it would be interesting
1: you know <clears throat> Paige's younger sister, who was shunned and ostracized and, and you know has been for now 23 years, Rebecca, put it really well. When I hadn't talked to her in a long time, one of my brothers reached out and found her. Because, again, she had been totally shunned. We weren't even allowed to say her name in our house because Paige didn't want any of the kids to remember her, their aunt. So he reached out to her and, and you know found her and told her what happened with Paige and I. And then we finally reconnected. And she said, you know, it'll take you a while. Because it took her years because she grew up with Uncle Robert and then, you know, got kicked out when she was in her early 20s. But she said it'll take you a while before you will be able to read the Bible, engage in a conversation, read a book, and not hear Uncle Robert's voice in your head. His voice giving you the instruction on what to think. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, boy, I hope it doesn't take that long. But she was right. Um, I don't think it took years for me. But there were plenty of times where I had already been kind of kicked out. I felt like I was pretty healthy mentally and spiritually and emotionally. You know, I, I recovered thanks to friends, family, and my faith. But, you know, st- I'd still hear things, hear trigger words, trigger subjects, and his voice would be in my head. Far seldom now, hardly ever hear it, but it was there for a long time. And I think that might be what you're getting at. You know, you can still be a completely healthy person. But it's kind of like a physical scar, right? Like you know, you you tear your ACL, you get it fixed, but you still got a little scar there. And I think that is kind of the way I would describe what you're saying is that you can be fully recovered and healthy. But that little voice might crop up every now and then. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: Just in in that example of that person, that that cult leader had taught them eating them, eating meat is basically the devil, you should never do that she still has really a lot of hard time eating meat. She loves, she loves cheeseburgers, but every time she still feels a little guilty about it. So yeah, that's, that's kind of is what I was getting at, you know? So we've only talked about this one family is what, you know, this control, was it just, you know, I know that it was a small group of, uh, was it, but it was just simply this one family group that he had controlled.
1: So a lot of cults, do like to expand. They're constantly trying to recruit other members, right? And they get pretty big, the Moonies, for example. Uh, ours is quite small. I really never saw a push to try and bring other people in. It was much more the exact opposite of, you know, the secrecy and the paranoia and circle the wagons. So there would have been, you know, our little family. So my wife and I, and then our five kids, and then uh, Paige's parents, and then one older brother. So Paige was one of five. The three youngest siblings had been shunned and ostracized because of Booty, And then all of the Clausen relatives from Canada. So the aunts and uncles, the cousins, all of them shunned. Now, there was a brother, Michael. You know, he was kind of the follower of Uncle Robert. Think of Batman and Robin. That was, you know, uh, Batman was Uncle Robert. And Robin would have been, you know, this, this brother Michael character. And a few other guys. But I would say at its apex, at its biggest, you know, it would have been what, maybe 10, 12 adults, and then the kids. So, you know, never very big. There was never the Jones, the Smiths, the Andersons, the, the whomever. And if they existed, um, Jackson, I never saw, and I don't think they did.
0: So why do you think that that, that was the case, that there was never expanded? I mean, you talked about, I mean, let's just talk about the economics of it. You talked about how he didn't work, his wife did. They They never had much money, I believe a lot of, of of you guys were were tithing to this this person. So the more people he had fallen, the more money he would have brought in. So what makes you, was it just that a small group he could control better or why do you think that was the case?
1: You know, another way I think I've heard that same question is, you know, what was in it for him? would ask me well what, you know, what was in it for him if there wasn't this huge following because you astutely bring up that yes we would tithe which in the Christian faith that means you know a tenth of what you get you give back to the Lord right as a way of saying thanks so we would all tithe to him you know we would send him money every month and you oh, by the way he would gamble so you know you, you connect those dots however you wish but uh it was a small group and so we were not bringing in other people so there was not the chance for all of this other uh you know wealth and riches to be accumulated my thought is that um, it was all about control and how this small little group made him feel. You know, we adored him. We revered him. I mean, I didn't for that long, but the other people did. And uh, that's got to be an incredible feeling for, you know, a narcissist like he was to have these people adore him. And and he would also, I remember him saying once that, you know, he was not called, like he felt like the Lord had called him to do this, to spread the true gospel. You know, and that was, of course, his gospel. Um, So he was not called to baptize. He was not called to do this or have a big church, et cetera, et cetera. So he must not have felt called to, you know, lead a large group. It was more like he has the corner on, uh, you know, biblical, let's say, defining what the gospel really means, you know, biblical truth. And he didn't really care how many close followers he had. As long as those in power get an audience with them, which speaks to another Uh, key attribute of cult leaders. They have a grandiose sense of self, as it's called. And that was clearly Uncle Robert. You know, he he claimed to have conversations with Alan Greenspan and other congressmen, representatives and senators. He'd go to DC and he was on a first name basis with them. And before Gulf War uh, number two uh, in the early 2000s, you know, he sent a letter to Saddam Hussein telling him what to do. And Saddam Hussein wasn't smart enough to listen to this guy in America. (laughs) And we'd hear stories like this all the time. So he clearly had a grandiose uh, sense of self.
0: Yeah, and you you said before we started talking about how probably the most important part or the most important person in this cult in this in this brainwashing was Paige because of who she was. She was highly educated, and he realized from an early early point that he needed to keep her engaged. So I want you to talk a little bit about the the depths that he went to, the links that he went to, to, to make that happen. I think this is where we can kind of talk about kind of the the convoluted dream, the, the, the book that you wrote um, mm-hmm. it, uh, it, it ties into that dream. So talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. I want to go back real quick to that book by Stephen Hassan, combating cult mind control. He was in the moodies which is large. He wrote his book a long time ago and then did a, an update to it a few years ago. And he said the biggest change between, let's say the last 10 years to back in the 70s and 80s, is the rise of these mini cults, anywhere from like two to 12 people. And I bet you there's a lot of these little cults running around. We, of course, were in one. And again, they're all about control. So this cult is really small. You know, Uncle Robert is about five, six. He's portly, completely bald, olive complexion, bulbous nose, jet black hair. He has no large following, doesn't have a lot of money. He's not very accomplished, doesn't have a big church or a, a career is rather homely looking. And so then here is Paige, right? He's got this little family under his thumb and Paige is tall, beautiful. She's got two master's degrees and uh, she's well-spoken. And So she walks into a room and here is this woman and she listens and adores and reveres this little man. Well, Paige gives uncle Robert instant cachet. And without her, where is uncle Robert? Well, this all is the buildup to, well, why did I call my book Stop the Tall Man Save the Tiger? Like, where in the world did you get that title from? All right, so before I met Paige in 1996, she had been baptized. And, you know, when you get baptized, you publicly profess your faith. But Uncle Robert wasn't there. Didn't do the baptizing. and wasn't there. Drove him nuts. A few months later, before she met me, she has a dream. And in the dream, which she believed was from the Lord, she's in a house with a boyfriend. There's a tiger on the loose. And she knows the tiger, if it finds her, it's going to kill her. But she doesn't want to kill the tiger. She just wants to kind of know where it is, control it, stay away from it, because the tiger represents things that she admires in life, strength, and honor, and respect, and duty, et cetera. So then the door of the house opens and a tall man walks in. She flees. She's scared for the tiger. The boyfriend disappears and she can't see the face of the tall man. And the tall man is there to kill the tiger. So she has this dream. I don't know if she has it a number of times, So it's always disturbing. It's a big deal to her. She writes a letter, sends it to Uncle Robert. Uncle Robert writes this 24-page bizarre letter and sends it to Paige, and she gets it right after I meet her. So again, I, I look back you know, on the calendar. Well, what day was Sunday? You know, in late, late October. He wrote the letter on a Wednesday, sent it on a Friday, and then that Sunday, Paige and I met for the first time. So remember, Uncle Robert has a face that Paige knows really well. Well, I believe that I was the tall man in the dream, and she couldn't see the face of the tall man because she hadn't met me yet. And oh, by the way, I'm six foot five. So in this long letter of interpretation, Booty tries to claim that he's the tall man, even though he's about five foot six. He obviously doesn't know who the tall man is because he hasn't met me yet either. Oh, and in real life, Chad, the boyfriend of the dream, he showed up to the second week of that singles Bible study and I never saw him again. So in the dream, he disappears when I show up. And in real life, I met him one time, disappeared. Okay, so in the letter, Booty, who is again, five foot six, you know, tries to claim he's the tall man and then convinces Paige, that she is the tiger, that she is unsaved, not a Christian, and the tiger is her old eagle, the old page that we are saved from when we truly become Christians. So in essence, he turns the dream on his head. He's the hero. She's the villain. She's not saved. And she, Paige, needs Uncle Robert to save her. And thus, that kept her underneath his thumb. Because if Paige can go ahead and get baptized and be saved without Uncle Robert, well, why do we need Uncle Robert? And that dream has had lasting repercussions to this day because I truly do believe that dream was from the Lord and it was a warning and I was there to, you know, be a conduit, let's say, to help her see that this guy was destroying her. And anyway, uh, you know, I did not really get it until, you know, 20, 23 years later, I really finally saw, oh my gosh. Like I remember telling that dream, like I just told you, the audience, I, I told that dream without my interpretation of it. And then these two people were like, oh, I know what that dream means. Like instantly they knew what it meant. And then so did I. And unfortunately, Paige still doesn't see it. You know, I tried to explain it to her once. We were in counseling and it went nowhere and she just disagreed. And it's so sad, but Booty was able to twist it, turn it, manipulate it, manipulate her. And I believe he still controls her to this day.
0: Then I want to, I guess I want to ask you with that, let, let's use that exact example where she sent him a letter, she told him about this dream, and he found a way to kind of construe it into, you know, making sure that she stayed loyal to him and that it was a calling based on on him. He had, he had turned it into that. Writing that letter, what do you think his purpose in that is? And the larger question with, with that is, because there's cult leaders that truly feel like they have a calling and that they are helping people. And that it's a passion, whether it makes any sense or not, there's, there's cult leaders like that. And then there's some that will just go along to get along just to keep power. Do you, do you think that he believed everything he said, or do you think it was, he would say what he needed to say in order to con- continue the control that he had?
1: Right. Yeah. Do I, do I think he was honest or do I think he was saying whatever he needed to a control page? I think in his mind, he believed it. I think in his mind, he believed every word of it. Yeah. To me, I think that's kind of the sign of of the narcissist. I mean, he was acting as a gatekeeper to God, grandiose sense of self that Paige needed him. It's kind of like, you know, the phrase, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, in our little cult, you know, I had already been saved as a teenager. Paige had already been saved. You know, she publicly professed her faith, was baptized. Her parents had been saved before they met Robert Booty in their probably late 20s, early 30s. But yet all of us were convinced that we had not been saved until we allowed Booty to save us. So in our little cult, it was kind of like, if someone is saved and becomes a Christian, but Uncle Robert's not there to witness it, does it really matter, which is awful to say, but it's pretty darn accurate. So to answer your question, Jackson, I think he believes every bit of it.
0: Yeah. So before we we started too, you, you talked about this, and I think it kind of Puts a nice stamp on, on the end of it, because I think that you realize just how deep it went and just how, I guess, broken that your marriage, your marriage was. And that was when at the end you had heard kind of what was happening the entire time with your marriage, um, the confessions that she had sent him talk a little bit about that and kind of the, how things blew up at, at the end.
1: Well, there were several discoveries that I made after she had left, um, you know, for a while, we shared one laptop. And so there was just some things that I saw on there. One was her testimony. So again, in the Christian faith, your testimony is, what has the Lord done for you? Or how did you become a Christian, right? And uh, when I read hers, and i had heard it in person, when I read it, you know, it was like, boy, who saved her? Uncle Robert or, or Jesus Christ? You know, Uncle Robert's name was mentioned more times. So that was kind of eye-opening. I read another letter she had written way back in 2000, Real briefly, the story with this one is our second child was born eight weeks premature, nearly died in the womb. She went into the hospital on bed rest. She was leaking amniotic fluid. The doctors never knew why, but she sure did. She felt like the Lord was punishing her because she had not come to the defense of Uncle Robert quick enough when her sister was you know, making these claims against him. She briefly believed her sister. So she felt, yeah, the Lord was endangering her life and our son's life because she did not honor... Robert Booty, quick enough. So she wrote a whole letter about that, you know, multiple pages. And I found this, my jaw dropped. I hadn't seen it. I mean, it was probably 21 years after the fact. And I kind of knew a little bit about how she felt, but I was stunned that uh, this is the depths to which she felt her life revolved around Uncle Robert. And then, of course, I found the original letter that Uncle Robert had written to her back in 1996. So I found all of these things like a year or two after she left. And it really helped me fit all the puzzle pieces together to come to the conclusion that I've already said that you know, as long as he was in our lives, our marriage was doomed.
0: So what made you decide to to write this book? Obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of parts that are could be could be triggering. I mean it's it, it is your life we're talking about. So what made you decide that you wanted to share it with with others?
1: Well, first of all, in writing it, it was very cathartic, very therapeutic. I do believe if you've ever been through something traumatic, writing it down on paper was very helpful for me. And that's what I did during COVID. I wrote like four or five hours a day and got the book done. Cults operate on secrecy and paranoia, and they control the followers. So much of what I've shared tonight, my family, now I'm one of five sons, my parents, my brothers, their, their wives, nieces and nephews, they knew very little of this. And I kept it secret from them, the young family, you not know, the classes, you know, my family. I kept it from them for decades and I held all this in for a long time and it ate me up. and You know, probably will send me to an earlier grave. <laughs> so I didn't want to be silent anymore. I wanted to share my story because I didn't want to be silent. And so if my story, whether you read my book or you're listening to this podcast or however you're going to hear this story, if it can change one life, rescue one family, prevent someone from joining a cult, whatever it may be, that it was worth it. And um, I just didn't want to be silent anymore. I wanted the truth to become known.
0: Yeah, I, I understand that. And I want you to now just tell us, and we're in present day now, what, you know, these are these are real people, you know, the actors in your book, Where where's everybody at today? I want to kind of you, I know that some of your family has, has joined you. Um, I just want to know kind of, of where we stand now and then kind of to piggyback off of that. You know, you talked about how this cult is is uh, you know based on secrecy, like many of them are. Well, you kind of threw it out there into the open. So I don't know whether you know anything about how they feel about this. I'm sure they feel just grand.
1: Well, the funny thing is, I don't know if Paige or her parents or Uncle Robert even know about the book. I, I would imagine they do. But that speaks to how little contact I have with them. So as far as I know, Uncle Robert's still alive. He'd be in his late 70s. I have not talked with him Either via phone, person, or email since 2018, so it's been five years. Um, I don't talk to you know Paige's parents, and I very seldom talk to Paige. It's still very tense. It's it's awful, you know. And we're still going through the courts. Unfortunately, you know, she called me a murderer and a documented abuser in a recent court filing. Which of course I have murdered anybody or abused anybody. So it's sad to see. It is. It's difficult uh, that it's still getting dragged on. Out of my five children, the three youngest still live with me. The courts sent them back to me uh, back in 2018. They saw the you know the influence of the cult, which is abusive emotionally. So they're doing well. I mean, you know, we all have our ups and downs, but they they do still love their mom, and I don't badmouth her, and she will always be their mom. So they should love her. Uh, but they see the truth with Uncle Robert, Robert Booty. They they know what happened, and so they are very healthy now. They're much stronger. They have recovered. We still have a long way to go, uh, as we all do. Would we'll probably always linger a little bit in the background. My two oldest boys, it's a little bit of work in progress. It's hard to blame them with everything that they went through. But I do pray for them that uh, hopefully one day we can you know reconnect and that relationship will be repaired. And then my family, the young family, my brothers and my parents, my parents are still alive and they're in their late 80s. And, and, uh, you know, again, this obviously you know, rocked them to the core when they found out about it, but they have all, rallied around me and showered me with love and support which is what a family should do
0: absolutely absolutely and I think that's that is an easy way to see that this was a a mess to begin with because that isn't what happened in this family when things went wrong people were, were shunned so i I like that you know you the, the people you surround yourself with now are uh, are supportive as they should be and I want you now just to tell us how people find the book we we covered a a kind of a, a very, as you said earlier, a Reader's Digest version of this book. So I want you to tell people how they can can read more about each of the, the things we talked about.
1: Sure. So the name of the book, again, is Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. you can get it on Amazon, exclusively on Amazon. Uh, you can also find my other book, The Blue Team. The novel is also on Amazon. And uh, if you want more information about me, uh, my website is authorpeteryoung.com. I also have my own YouTube channel which is at author Peter Young. I love to read so I do videos on, you know, on book reviews and I also do a little kind of story vignettes on some of the stuff that's in the book also some of the stuff that's not in the book. You know, I couldn't fit every anecdote into the book. It just would have been too long. So, uh, I've got some of that stuff uh, online.
0: Yeah. Well, I will tell you it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate
1: you. Thank you very much Jackson for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: So that was Peter Young. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Hope you learned a lot. You know, like I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, the growth of these micro cults is just, it, it can't not be ignored. You know, there's, there's not a ton of, of these cults that we know about anymore. Of course, there's, you know, there's been some in the news when it comes to, you know, the fundamental church, the FLDS and, and that type of thing and Warren Jeff's and, and, and those type of things have been in the news. But what we don't see and what most people don't hear about is these micro cults that have just a few people in them that it, it just rocks the world. And I think that you learn just how how interesting and just how impactful it was for, for Peter. You know, there was a time during during the uh, the marriage that he was he was bought in as as well. Whether it was because he was just trying to you know save his marriage. Or whether he was truly feeling that way—that's uh, that's to be to, to to be determined, I guess. But uh, I I learned so much from Peter. It's you know you you talk to Peter just like I've talked to other people in Carlton, you think that uh, you know he he seems like a, a really smart guy. He doesn't seem like somebody who could be dragged into something like this. It just goes to show how powerful these things can be. And uh, I don't think any of us are immune to, um, falling into, to people who say all the right things and say things smoothly and make you feel like you're, you're not very smart if you don't agree with them. And that, uh, that's how people gain power. So I, I hope you learned a lot from this. You know, if you're sitting there and maybe you're thinking, Hey, I, I know somebody who, who's acting like this a bit, then, then, hey, don't, uh, don't take 20 years to, uh, to realize what's happening. Like, like happened with, with peter here so i hope you'll check out his book um both of his books they will uh, they'll be in the show notes for you to check those out and, and pick you up a copy i also will put a link to his youtube in the show notes he's got some some awesome resources there where he talks you know in depth about more aspects of, of cults and and whether you're in one yourself I think that you're going to, uh, to learn a lot there. Uh, it's just a fascinating a fascinating topic and, and one that I, I think that uh, we could all learn a lot from. So I hope, uh, hope you'll check him out. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, appreciate you being here. Go leave a five-star review on Apple and on Spotify. Go leave a written review on Apple. Even more amazing. Follow along on Instagram, not in a huff podcast, jacksonf.com, not in a huff with Jackson huff on Facebook, all those places. Appreciate you supporting the podcast. Uh, if you do nothing else, catch us next week. Another amazing guest. Take it away, Chris. This has been not in a huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening.
1: Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh, or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.